I want to look at three truths in this passage before us today that come right out of the text. He is risen. He is Lord. And then what that means for us. He is risen from the dead. He is Lord of all. And, and the application for us. The first, He is risen from the dead. An old preacher talked about how you can go to graveyards and you can see epitaphs. Those are the words over tombs that say, here lies so-and-so. But if you were to come to the tomb of Jesus, that, that first Easter resurrection morning, these were the words there, he is not here. In fact, what was over his tomb were two angels who were announcing, he is not here, he is risen He's not here. He's risen. That was what is over his tomb. And I I want us to think about the difference between all other religions and the only one who can say of their founder, he is risen. No other religion even attempts to claim an empty tomb, but Christianity does. There's many religions. There's many movements out there, whether Muslim or Mormon or even Marxism and other movements, but all of their founders are dead. Muhammad is dead. Marx is dead. Joseph Smith is dead. But Jesus is risen. Buddha, he had his ashes spread to seven cities or eight cities. But Jesus, this day, is alive in every country and in every part of the world. You can go to the famous cemetery of Confucius. There is a cemetery where Confucius is buried, but there is no cemetery for Jesus. There are many countries that remember the day that Gandhi died. But all around the world today, we are remembering, Christians are remembering the day that God the Son rose. He came back to life. And so there's a vast difference between Jesus and all the other founders of religions and and cults. You could go to Mary Baker Eddy's tombstone and you could see it this day, but if, if you were to go to the, the tomb of Jesus that first resurrection day, the, the stone was rolled away to show that he is not there. He is risen. And the stone didn't need to be rolled away to let him out. It needed to be rolled away to show that he's not there. Ellen G. White and Elijah Muhammad to this day are rotting, but Jesus this day is risen and he is alive. Right now, L. Ron Hubbard, Charles Taze Russell, we could go down the list. They are still buried, but not Jesus. Not Jesus. You could look at teachers like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and all of those who are still in the ground, but our Lord and Savior Jesus, he is exalted and he is on high in heaven right now. You can think of philosophers. You can think of Nietzsche who said God is dead, but Nietzsche is dead and God the Son is alive. There are former world leaders who are laid to rest in crypts and pyramids and burial chambers and Westminster Abbey, but there is no place where the body of Jesus is laid to rest. He came back to life. And this sets him apart from all those other world conquerors who are in their graves. Jesus is the one who conquered the grave. And that's what we celebrate here today. Popes, pharaohs, Caesars, kings, Napoleon, Hitler, Hussein, all of them are dead, but Jesus is alive. I've seen 
tombs in old Jerusalem. Some of them thousands of years old, but there is one that is different. is the garden tomb. The, the tomb is still empty. And so it's been said about Jesus, what makes him stand out is that he climbed out of his own tomb. What makes Jesus stand out from anyone else in history is, is he could stand outside his own tomb, of his, of his own efforts. He said, they, I lay myself down and I will raise myself up again. There's no tomb or soldier that could keep him down. It's been said the Pharisees found they couldn't stop him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. That is our king. That is King Jesus who we are talking about today. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And so what we are celebrating is not a religion here today. We're celebrating a resurrection. We're not like other faiths that tell you what you can do to get to God. The the faith that we have in Jesus is about him doing the work for us, and it's a finished work. He said it is finished on the cross. He died for our sins, and he rises for our life on the third day. And so all the other religions, what they have in common is there's all, they're they're telling you how to be the kind of good person who can get to God or whatever they define the afterlife to be. But Romans, in contrast to religion, Romans tells us, no, you're not good and you can't be good enough. You need redemption. You need regeneration. You need the resurrection of Jesus for you because you cannot be saved by being a good person. You're saved by believing here in the text. God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus who was good enough for us and who gives grace to us. And so in verse 9 of this text, it says, To be saved, you must in your heart believe this first truth, that God raised Jesus from the dead. There's many who miss heaven by 18 inches. They've got it up here. They know these truths. They hear these truths. Maybe they don't argue with these truths, but it's not in their heart. It's not what they're trusting in and and treasuring in is their only hope. They're thinking maybe it's about what we can do as well. Yes, that was good what Jesus did, but I need to do these things to to be saved. But the question before us in this passage is, do you believe this in your heart in the sense of, are you trusting his death and his life and his resurrection for you as your only hope to get to God? There's no way to the Father except through Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And so I need to ask you, do you believe that Jesus is risen indeed. I would ask you what Mary was asked at that tomb. Whom are you seeking? Who are you seeking? Who are you living for? What are you about? Verse 10 says, it's with the heart that one believes and is justified. That means declared righteous before God. God the judge declaring us to be righteous and acceptable in his sight. And he, Romans explained earlier this, God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification. I mean, so that we can be declared right in God's sight. The beginning of this book in chapter 1, verse 4, says Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. That's where he was declared to the world to be the Son of God and, and the one with all power and all authority in heaven and earth. 
By his resurrection from the dead, it says, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so that takes us from, he is risen, the first point, to our, our second point. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and he is Lord. He is Lord of all. Look at verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And then verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In the year 1973, there was a man studying the Bible, studying this passage. He was studying with Jehovah's Witnesses who have a very different understanding of the cross and salvation and the tomb and, and, a, and a different understanding of who God is. They believe there's only that, that God is Jehovah and that Jesus is, is not God. He is a God in their translation and their mistranslation. But as this man was studying John 1 and, and other passages, looking at, at this scripture here in verse 9, that in order to be saved, you've got to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and then it goes on to say he is Lord of all, and then it says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In their translation, in verse 13, it's everyone who calls on the name of Jehovah will be saved. But he asked if he could look at, at, at a Greek and English version of their translation, and, and it's the same word Lord all through this as in verse 13 the name of the Lord or the, the name of, of Jehovah. And it's, it's quoting from the Old Testament where that name, that Hebrew name, Jehovah, or probably Yahweh, how it was pronounced, that he is the, the name that saves. But what happens is you come into the, the New Testament, the name that we are saved by is the name of Jesus. His name is Lord. He has that name that's above every name. It's, it's given to him. It's at the name of Jesus. Every knee bows and every tongue confesses. And, and this person understood is reading this and even reading from their own translation, looking at the Greek, he knew a little bit from college that, that it's the name of Jesus that saves. Whoever calls on the name of, of Jesus will be saved. Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is God. There is no other name, no higher name given among which everyone shall bow. He is the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. And what that means is he is the, the God who is called Lord thousands of times by this title in, in Scripture. There's not two lords of all. There's only one Lord of all. There's one God in three persons. And that name is shared among all of them. And so to confess Jesus is Lord is to confess that he is God. And it's to call on him alone to save. Verse 12 says he's the, the same Lord who is Lord of all. In other words, he's over all. He owns us and all. Either Jesus is Lord of all or he is not your Lord at all. You can't just say, I believe in him, but, but I'm going to live my life the way you want. You've got to be willing to turn everything in your life over to him. You can't just say, he's my Savior. He, he must be your Lord. And so the question is, do you confess he is Lord? Do you confess he is the God of the Old Testament, the, the only name by which we can be saved? And, and this, wasn't, this title, Lord, was not just a title for an honorary individual. In fact, the early Christians, 
even at the threat of death, refused to say, Caesar is Lord. They were told, just say Caesar is Lord, and you can go on without persecution. But they would not say Caesar is Lord because they understood that's a title we only give to one, and that is to God. God is our Lord. We're not going to confess Caesar in the way that we confess Christ. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word Lord, kurios, was used of God over 7,000 times. They knew this word growing up. This is what they, they heard in their worship every Sabbath. And they knew as they hear Caesar, the emperor, claiming to be Lord, we cannot call him that. We cannot give ultimate allegiance to the emperor. Look at chapter 9, verse 5. Just back a page. It says, To them, speaking of Israel, belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. Blessed forever. Christ is God over all. Blessed forever. And the resurrection is what sealed it for Doubting Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas, but he was only temporarily doubting. He actually became Believing Thomas. I think we should call him that because as he sees Jesus on, uh, and he appears before him, and he, and he shows him his hands and his side, Thomas makes the, the greatest declaration in, of all the other disciples. He says, my Lord and my God. That's what he says in John 20. And then Jesus doesn't correct him. Say, what, Thomas, you're getting a little carried away. He commends him. And he says, you've seen and believed. Blessed are those who haven't seen and believe. And, and then he says this, this. John says, this is why his whole gospel is written. This is the culmination that we also might believe and might see who Jesus is, just like Thomas did. And so the question is, have you confessed Jesus as your Lord and as your God? And to confess him means, first of all, you confess that you're a sinner. You are in need of him, and you call on his name. That means who he is is your only hope. There was a, a jailer in Acts 16 who asked the apostles, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. You've got to believe he is Lord. His lordship is essential to salvation. He's not just Savior, he is Lord. In fact, I think in the book of Acts, Jesus is referred to as, as Savior just a, a handful of times and but he's referred to as Lord about a hundred times. That's, that's who he is. And we need to believe that. We need to confess that. Not just believe it in our head, but in our heart. And confessing with our mouth, it says, that Jesus is the Lord. In other words, we confess it to him, but also we confess it to others. Confessing is a part of repenting, which is turning from sin to him. And so in the Gospels, and John the Baptist comes, it says they, they came confessing their sins publicly as they were baptized. But Jesus also said, whoever will confess me before men, I will confess him before my Father in, in heaven. We've we got to be willing to confess his name and that we are his to others. And then he will own us on that day. But also I want you to see confessing he's Lord not only means he's our owner, but it also means he's our Master. So turn with me to Romans 14, and I want you to 
see both of those nuances of this word Lord, this word kurios in the Greek. Romans 14, verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master. That's the same word from our passage. Confess Jesus is Lord. Master, it can also be translated Lord or master. It's just a, it's the same word that it is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord. That's the same word, kurios, in both times, master or Lord, is able to make him. Same word, same verse, Lord, master. It's, it's the same word. When we confess Jesus is Lord, we are confessing Jesus is master, my master. He's in charge of me is what we are confessing. We must confess Jesus is our master. There's a a song that says, O master, let me walk with thee in lowly paths of service free. That's the heart of a believer. Lord, you're the master. You're the potter. I'm the clay. Lord, have thine own way in my life. And verse 8 of chapter 14 says it this way, For if we live, we live to the Lord. It's all about Him. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. That's ownership. We belong to Him. For Verse 9, To this end Christ died and lived again. Here's the purpose why He died and then rose again. That He might be Lord both of the dead and the living. So he's Lord, and it's, it's proved by the resurrection. He is Lord of all, whether they acknowledge it or not. And in the end, all are going to acknowledge it. But, but we see here, we don't make him Lord. He is Lord. We don't make him Lord. He is Lord. We need to confess that he is my Lord and Master. But he already is Lord. There's no question he is Lord. The only question is, will you say it truly in your heart before it's too late? Before it's too late. Here's what Isaiah 45, 23 says. This is Jehovah or Yahweh speaking. Is it not I, Jehovah, a righteous God and Savior? There is none except me. He says, by my own self I have sworn that to me every knee will bow down and every tongue will confess. That's what he says in Isaiah 45. That's Judgment Day. And Philippians 2 applies that to Jesus That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That he is that Lord God from the Old Testament. And every, every tongue will confess that to the glory of God the Father. To kneel was what you would do if you were a slave or a subject. So it wasn't something that other religions did in in their worship even in their prayers. Here's what one scholar said. In in ancient religions of New Testament times, kneeling played no role in the ceremonies of Greek and Roman worship. Such slavish behavior would have been met with contempt and would have been a cause for shame. And yet this is the very language that's used of Christ. Every knee must bow. Every tongue must confess which takes us from he is Lord to, to what this means for us. He's risen, he's Lord, but, 
What about us? What does this mean for us? And here's the application. You are a slave. You are a slave. And I want to show you this from the, from the passage and from the book of Romans. Paul's writing to the Romans who were very familiar with this idea of slaves. In fact, the very use of the word Lord was all over their culture. There were millions of lords and, and there were tens of millions of slaves who related to them. And so in the first century, this word, doulos, slave, this applied to the, the title kurios, lord or master. If, if you were a lord or a kurios, if you said that of someone else, you were also saying, I am your slave, I am your doulos. If you were to bow the knee and you were to confess that someone is, is your lord, what that means is subjection and submission. It means that you are a subordinate below them. Your, your will is, is irrelevant now. It's about him. It's, it's saying that he is the master. He is in charge. He owns me. He is God and I am not. He is master and I am a slave. Paul says to be saved, you must confess Jesus is Lord. And all that that meant to them when he said that. In Romans 12 tells us that we need to be transformed, not, not conformed to the way the world thinks. We need to actually be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And this is big. We need to transform the way we think of ourselves and our place in this world. And, and I can sense that there's some of us who are already resisting this because Americans, I mean, we were founded by and, are, and we're even marked by resisting authority and mastery as Americans. I mean, we're no monarchy this is a free country, we say. I'm free to do as I choose. No one's going to tell me what to do. We talk of free will and our, our freedoms. But here's a news flash. Spiritually, you are not free. God's word makes clear spiritually, you are not free. You're going to serve somebody. As a singer once said, you're going to serve somebody. If you don't bow to Jesus and confess he is Lord, you're not free. Listen, you are already a slave. There are people who are slaves and they don't know that they are enslaved. Here's what Jesus said in John 8. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And because we're doing what we want, we don't think of it as slavery, but we're enslaved to sin and what sin would desire for us rather than what God would de desire for us. The Bible is clear. Everyone is a slave. The question is what our master is. Or the question is who our master is. Who are we living for? Who is dominating and has dominion? Is it sin and self or is it Christ, and as we speak of this language of slavery, in New Testament times, it was not race-based. It was often temporary, but, but here's the key point that's, that's being made by this language of, of calling someone a, a lord. You're not serving as an employee who is paid someone who is your lord. You've actually been paid for by that lord. It's the idea of Romans 3. We were Sin once owned us like a slave owner, but Jesus comes and he redeems us. That word redeem or, or redemption is used of buying from the slave market. He, he's buying us back from the slave market of sin so that we now belong to him as our 
new master. So that our former master, if you, if you now have a new Lord who you're now calling Lord, you're also saying there's, there's no one else. No one can serve two masters. Remember Jesus said that? The, the idea there is that our former master has no more claim on us. He has no more chains on us. Jesus is my Lord now. And that's how Paul starts this letter. He calls himself a, a doulos of Christ our Lord, a slave And then he goes on in Romans 1 to say, this is for you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. You belong to him. He he owns you. We belong to him by faith. And he says that he's writing so that the obedience of faith would be brought about. Obedience is not optional for us in a a slave and Lord relationship. And I want you to see this in chapter 6. Chapter 6 Verse 4 is actually talking about this implication of Jesus being risen from the dead, that he's alive, and we're to walk in a new life. And Romans 6 verse 5 says, Believers then will be resurrected like him. But I want to pick up in verse 6 where he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Here it is, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So that's part of what's happening that we celebrate this weekend is Jesus died on the on the cross part of what he's doing there is that we would no longer be enslaved to sin that's the verb form of this word doulos sin used to be our lord but it's not anymore if if we believe in Christ and confess him as lord verse 16 do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves you are slaves of the one whom you obey. And here's, here's the choices. You are slaves. Here's the choices. Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So you are slaves. The question is, is it going to be sin and self? Or are you going to obey the righteousness of God in Christ? Here's what verse 17 says. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. So you're set free from sin's slavery to become slaves to the righteousness of God in Christ. You're not free to do what you want. You are freed from your sinful wants so that you can obey what the Master wants. We're not, we're not really free to do that before because we're, we have this strong pull and this dominion before we come into Christ. But, but now you're, you're set free from slavery to sin so that you can now be freed to do what the master wants because there's a new heart. You're obedient from the heart now. He's given you a new heart. And so sometimes we talk of free will, but we actually need a freed will. We need our will to be freed from sinful slavery. And we can thank God, if you're in Christ, that we who were former slaves of sin now want to obey him. Our heart is is now inclined to, to want to obey him because it's a new heart. He redeems us and he gives us a, a new heart in, in regeneration. So we're not just saved by God, we're actually slaves of God, verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin, look at verse 22, you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, 
But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That word Lord covers all of that, but he, he says it explicitly. If, if, we, if he's our Lord, we are, we are his slaves. You could say it this way. We're under new ownership. We're under new ownership now. And here's the, the choices before us. Sin is a taskmaster that will kill us. It pays us death. That's the wages of sin is death. But God redeems us to be slaves of his, and he pays for eternal life in Jesus, our Lord and Master. And so in verse 14, here's how the New American Standard says it. Sin shall not be master over you. Sin is not to be your master anymore. It's not to have dominion over you anymore. You don't have to give in to that anymore if you are in Christ. We do have this sin that remains, but it must no longer reign for believers. You've got to have your mind renewed to see who you are in Christ and that you are not owned anymore by sin. You're not owned anymore by your selfish desires before and your old master It's like on the other side of of the fence. You've been brought over into this new kingdom here, but you're not to go back to that fence and begin to talk to your old master as if he still has some claim on you and he tells you to do this or that and you don't have to anymore, Paul is saying. So don't let anyone or anything else have mastery over you. And that's not just what Romans 6 says. The next book, 1 Corinthians 6 says, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That's, that's slave language. And, and by the way, if you understand this concept, a whole lot of other verses in the New Testament make sense. But that is slave language, someone who's been bought. And it's, it's not just up to them to do whatever they want with their body and with their life. They belong to him. They're now owned by the master. And so, Christian, don't believe culture's lie that you and your body are your own to do whatever you want with. Or a woman's body with an unborn life. Or a man's body that he can just say is a woman's body. God has created your body to glorify him. He's in charge, not you. You're not to play God with anything in this life. He owns you body and soul. And our identity is to be found in him. And if you're a Christian, your identity is in him. You've been bought back by a loving master that you must live to please. But you need to know who you are in Christ. You need to know whose you are. And maybe you think, well, I don't, I don't want any of that. Listen, you are, you are already owned by someone, whether you believe it or not. The question is, who are you owned by? What are you owned by? And so to say Jesus is Lord, this collides with our autonomy. It collides with identity politics, but it also collides with our arrogance and our independent spirit. And so that's why 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. When you really understand what it means to say Jesus is Lord, nobody, that's impossible. No one would do that unless the Holy Spirit was at work in your life. And that's what I'm praying even right now. The Holy Spirit would help you not to resist God's truth, but to actually want to to give up on on striving to be in charge when, when you're not and to let the Lord 
Be the Lord. Be the master. Be the one who he has created you to be. Here's what 2 Timothy 2, 19 says. Having this seal, that was another mark of, of slaves in those days. They could they'd be sealed sometimes. This is a spiritual seal. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. It says, everyone who names the name of the Lord must abstain from wickedness. And it says this, we need to be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master. I love that. That's, that's what we need to be. Lord, help me to be cleansed from sin, fighting sin in my life. I want to be useful to you, the master. Because it's not about me anymore. And it says in that passage, the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but patient when wronged. And it says we need to help others escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. There's people who don't know they're Satan's captives. But we can help rescue them. This is how the early church understood themselves. This is an early church prayer in Acts chapter 4, verse 29. Lord, consider their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your message with complete boldness. Lord, you are Lord. Help your slaves to be bold. Help us to to speak your, your gospel. And here's what the Lord Jesus said in Luke 17, 10. This is the New American Standard. Some Bibles use a little bit different wording. But he says this. When you have done all that you ought to have done, this is what you are to say. We are unworthy slaves. We have only done what we ought to have done. Even when you've done everything God's called you to. This is to be your heart. We're just unworthy slaves. We've, we've only done what we should have done. And so all that to say, to call someone Lord, to confess someone as Lord, is not just boss. It's I bow to, I belong to a master. It's, it's saying really my will, my desires, my rights, my life. I'm going to lay that down before you, Lord, to do whatever you want with as your lowly slave. And I know this word slave is not politically correct, but it's a more biblically correct term than the word servant. And, and sadly, many of the Bibles translate this word in many places, servant, because of some things from our nation's past, which is not the kind of what he's talking about here, but, but when they translate it that way, you're missing the nuances of what it means to be, some of them say, bondservant. The ESV often has servants, so you miss it. Bondservant, you might see that in some places. It's this word, and you're bound to serve. And you're, but every New Testament writer, every writer of the New Testament identifies himself with this word, doulos, slave of Christ. Mary identifies herself this way. Simeon, the early church, the word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. This word for slave describing Christians is used dozens and dozens of times In fact, 700 times when they refer to Jesus as the Lord or the Master, this is part of the implication of that. This is huge. And and, and one of the practical implications of this is this can help with the huge problem of being a people pleaser. If you're living for what other people think of you, you're consumed by what other people think of you. Galatians 1.10 says, if I were still trying to please people, I would not be a slave of Christ. And Ephesians 6, 6 says, as we work, many of you will be going to work tomorrow or, or this week, and here's what you're to do. We're not to work for eye service. 
And literally, he's using the root word for slave here. You're not to be a, a slave to the eye of others. You're not to be bound by what other people think of you. He says this in order to please people, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. That's how we're to, to work and conduct ourselves as we go into the world this week. We're not to be enslaved by what other people think of us. But we are to think that I, that I need to be like a slave of Christ. I need to do his will. It's an audience of one. I need to please him. He's my master, even though I might have an earthly person I call boss. And seeing yourself as his slave can change everything. It can be freeing. There's security knowing he is master of my fate and soul. This helps understand the, the gospel call. It's, it's not just ask Jesus into your heart like you're invite, inviting him to have a, a part of your life. It's confess he's Lord, confess he is master. You confess that you are his subject. You don't add him to your plans. You're acknowledging him in all your ways as Lord of all. A Romanian pastor in the 1980s who had served under communism. As he came to America, he, he noticed a difference in the way American Christians spoke. He said, the modern American church has replaced the expression total surrender with the word commitment, and they've replaced the biblical word slave with the word servant. He says, but there's an important difference. A servant gives service to someone, but a slave belongs to someone. We commit ourselves to do something, but when we render ourselves to someone, we are giving ourselves up. But as we do this, we need to, again, not think about American slaveholders in the South because that's not the concept that's being talked about here. I, I need to tell you about my master. I want to tell you about my master, Jesus. He is not abusive in any way. He is affectionate. He doesn't hurt those who he is over. He, he brings healing to them. He owns me, and that is a good thing. Because he's in charge of me. He meets all of my needs. And yes, he's in control. But yes, he has great compassion. Uh, let me tell you about this master. He is merciful. He is a loving Lord. There has never been someone so loving as him. He, he leads me into whatever I need to face. Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe forward into battle. That's how we go. He is our master. He is our king, but he is kind. The king of the universe condescended to come all the way down, and he came down for rebel slaves, slaves who were rebelling against him, who wanted nothing to do with him. He comes down, and he is mistreated more than, than any slave. He is the, the owner, the one who calls you to, to give up your life. He gave up his life for you. Know this, the one who calls you to give up your life, he's the one who gave up his life for you. This master who calls you to come to him has open and nail-pierced hands. And his hands are open wide to you now. His wounds are even visible above. As John sees in heaven, he sees a lamb standing as though he had been slain. And his in his resurrected body that he showed Thomas, he still has those wounds that he shows to us. And so don't miss this meaning of Good Easter, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Because as Jesus came to Jerusalem on Passion Week, he, he said this, Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is what you give for someone who's a captive. It's those who are captives who need a, a ransom. And he did that for many, many who were slaves. But Jesus came that week to those who were trying to just live for themselves, wanting to be first, wanting to do it their way. He came to free them from that and to bring that to himself. And, and the way he did it was amazing. In the upper room, as they're all gathered there, the night before he's, the night that he is betrayed, as he's about to go to Gethsemane and then the cross, he strips off his outer garment. He's down to a towel. That's what a slave would wear. He kneels to the ground. He washes their feet. That's what a slave would do. He goes to the cross from there. That's how a slave would die. This is the master of the universe doing this. Here's what Philippians 2 says. He emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. Even though he was and is God, he, he took the form of a slave, it says, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name which is above every name. That's the same name that God the Father has. Jesus has this same name. So that at that name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And all that means to the glory of God the Father. This is the Lord who did all of that for us. Humbling himself, emptying himself of all of his privileges. The master of the universe, the Lord of Eternity, one song says, kneeling in humility and washing our feet. I mean, a slave is a, is a humbling title. It's a humbling way to think of ourselves. But think of our Lord who humbled himself and emptied himself for us, died on the cross, the death of a slave. And then he rose and he's exalted so that all who will confess that he is Lord and call on his name can be saved. And not only that. In the scripture reading earlier, I hope you noticed a word that, that stood out. It would have stood out to, to Mary and the disciples when he says to Mary Magdalene these words, Go tell my brothers. He'd never called them brothers before. But he says, Go tell my brothers that I am risen. And he's saying this in the context that these guys just betrayed him and, and denied him. And they all left him. The writer of Hebrews says, he is not ashamed to call us brothers. He calls us brothers. He relates to that. These guys who, who were slaves of him by nature, he's now calling them brothers. And, and look right here in Romans 8, just one text to bring this all together. Romans 8, 15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And then look at verse 30. The end of the verse says, Christ is the firstborn among many brothers. He has the first place of many brothers. And so this is, this is really amazing. Galatians also connects this with Jesus dying to redeem us so that we're not slaves to the law anymore, but we are now sons. And if we are sons, then we are heirs of all the inheritance 
that is due the only begotten Son. So we're not just slaves. We are sons with all spiritual riches or, or resources. Ephesians says when God chooses to adopt us, to redeem and to adopt us, he lavishes his grace upon us. He doesn't leave us working outside of the, of the house. He brings us into his household as fellow members of the family of God, Ephesians 1 and 2 says. And so God raised Jesus from the dead, and he also raises his brothers to the heavenlies. That is who we confess is Lord. He is risen indeed, and he is returning. And listen to this, Luke 12, 37. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you, he, that's the master, when he comes, will gird himself to serve and he will have them recline at the table. And he, the master, will come and wait on them. We're to be looking as expectant servants, slaves of him for when he's coming. We want to be doing his will when he comes. We want to be alert. But here's the motivation of knowing this master, this one that we're to fall before and worship. He's actually going to serve us. He's going to serve his slaves in his kingdom to the end. He's going to gird himself like a servant again, it says. He's going to have his people recline at the table. Maybe this is the wedding supper of the lamb. And he's going to come. He's going to be the waiter. He's going to be the one serving his slaves in his kingdom. This is the one who calls you to come to him in humble, repentant faith. The last chapter of Revelation says... That the book was written to show to his slaves the things which must soon take place. It says there's no longer going to be any sorrow, any, any sin, any suffering. And it says there will no longer be any curse. And it says this, his slaves will serve him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. And they will reign forever and ever. He's the risen king. We are slaves, but... It, if we are his and his name is on us, there's no curse. There's blessedness in serving him. And we will serve forever with our brother Jesus in his reign. It says they will reign forever with him. This is the risen king. This is my master. I pray that he's your master. If you're not sure, we would love to talk with you up front. Our brother and sister will be up front. would love to talk with you more about these things, but this is our King. And I want to pray that he would work in each of our hearts these truths. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for these humbling truths, humbling and yet encouraging as we look to Christ. I pray, Lord, for any who this day need to be delivered from the bondage slavery of sin, that you would draw them all the way to yourself, that they would speak to those who know Christ, and that you would make this day the very day of the, the dawning of their new life in you. But I pray for all of us, Lord, as we battle sin, that we would not let sin or believe the lie that sin is our master or that it defines us or that we are always going to be a certain way. We thank you for the freeing liberating, glorious gospel. And we pray that we would all live in light of it now. 
We pray these things in the honor of the name of our risen King Jesus. Amen.